Welcome to the Rhythms Podcast. I'm Brian Wise, the editor of the magazine. Thanks for joining me. Well, on May the 24th, we celebrated Bob Dylan's 80th birthday. Incredible to think that he has been touring and recording for most of that time, since he was just 20 years of age when he released his first album back in 1962. That's 59 years of those 80 years recording. It's a remarkable career for the Nobel Prize prize winner in literature and what better way to celebrate Bob's 80th birthday than to talk about him with the curator of the Bob Dylan Centre in Tulsa, Oklahoma which officially opens in May next year. Michael Chaikin has a long history working in archives and he took up the job with the Bob Dylan Centre some years ago and he'll tell you all about that, how it came to be and what's contained in the centre. And we'll also hear some Bob Dylan compositions as well. So tell us how the archive's going to be set up. It's not going to be set up like a normal museum, isn't it? And I'll talk to you about some of the aspects of Dylan's work that you want to show, but what's the layout going to be like? Is it going to be, there are a lot of music museums that are interactive these days. So how's it going to work? How are you setting it up? Yeah, I mean, I think that there'll definitely be some of that. I mean, attached to the Bob Dylan Center is essentially like a, a library, a reading room where, you know, all the manuscripts and, 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 and all the, um, like all of our digital assets, we've scanned a lot of the, you know, the film material, session tapes have all been digitized. And that's where people who are doing, you know, scholarly work or research, whether it's on Dylan or the civil rights movement or whatever, you know, whatever it may be, you know, you know, they would make an appointment and they could come and, and, and they'd be given um, access to that material. Now for the, you know, the rest of the center is essentially the, the, the public face of the archive uh, uh, and will be, you know, the place where, you know, anyone could kind of come in and, 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 and engage with the, with the collection, but it'll, it, you know, it'll be curated. It's not like, you, you know, they're going to throw out all the, uh, all the materials and say, have at it. Um, so it'll, 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 it'll be guided uh, in a way. And, you know, there's essentially a couple things that are happening at once. On, on, on one hand, it, it, it's a center that is kind of dedicated to, 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 to Dylan and his life work. But, you know, the overarching, you know, the overarching, you know, theme of the center really is just this notion of, of, of restless creativity. And Dylan is kind of the North Star. He's kind of the perfect, uh, you know, artist to kind of work through to, 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 to you know, just explore ideas of, of, of creativity and what that, what, what that means, not just for Dylan, but for other artists as well. And uh, so it, it's kind of working on two levels at once, you know. It'll be the place where the public can come and, and explore the archive, but it'll also be dealing with broader themes and ideas around the notion of, of, of creativity and restless creativity. So there's a lot of kind of like flexibility built into the, into the space. There'll, there'll definitely be some anchor exhibits where people can listen to um, session tapes and they'll be able to see uh, film material like the outtakes from, from Don't Look Back and, and, and things like that. But the space is also being built in such a way where we can have different exhibitions uh, kind of coming in and out. Uh, in more of like a repertory fashion, things that might seem a little bit tangential uh, 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 to Dylan, but uh, hopefully in the context of the center will we'll, we'll make a lot of sense. So, you know, be able to explore, you know, other artists in Bob Dylan's circle or artists who were influenced by Dylan uh, in some way. So we're trying to keep it as like open as, as, as possible. So it doesn't, 
you know, it doesn't get stale for people. I mean, a, a big part of the uh, reason why the, uh, you know, the archive is, is in Tulsa is, is, you know, to, to kind of be, to use that to, to kind of ingratiate itself to the rest of the, uh, the arts community and the activity that's, that, that, that's happening in Tulsa. So it's very much like a, a cultural center with Dylan as the North Star. That makes any sense. Yeah, um, you're planning to open on May the tenth next year. Do you think Bob Dylan will uh, come along for the opening? Good, that's a good question. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Um, <laughs> uh, he might. He might not. Um, but we should probably get the invitation out to him as early as possible. Uh, <laughs> he might send a video in. Who knows? Who knows? I, I mean, my feeling would be he probably. You know, he'd probably stick his head in, you know, not around the opening, but, you know, at, at some some later point, maybe. But who knows? Who knows? You've been working on this for some years now. Have, have you actually met him or spoken to him yet or just his people? Um, I mean, I worked very closely with his people. I did, I, you know, I did have the opportunity to meet with him once and it, and it was it was very interesting. Um, it, was, it was shortly after the archive um, came to Tulsa so the archives started arriving in March of 2016. And uh, as I'm sure you're aware, shortly after that, I think in, it was September, October of 2016, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in, in, in literature. And you might remember that everybody was kind of wondering where Dylan was and why he wasn't making any kind of public speech. Well, it just so happened that he was in Tulsa that week <laughs> because he was playing a concert. and. Uh, and so I, I, I did have an opportunity, me and some of the other, some of my other colleagues at the Kaiser Foundation had the opportunity to meet him around then. And uh, we met him in the Woody Guthrie Center, which was really interesting. Closed down the Guthrie Center. And uh, yeah, it was great. It was very relaxed. And Bob was very funny. And uh, we pulled out a lot of uh, Woody's materials for Bob. And uh, yeah, he really seemed into it and seemed genuinely um, just moved by it. And um was calling in other people from his entourage to see some of the stuff. We had the Guthrie Center have some of Woody's instruments, and he was very interested in, in, in some of that stuff too. It was cool to see how intrigued he was <laughs> looking at Woody's material. And, uh, you know, the hope is that, you know, when we have other artists through town, that that same kind of connection or response, you know, will, will, will occur when they look at Bob's materials. I think if we pulled Bob's materials out, and said, hey, Bob, look at this. He'd probably run out the door. But the fact that it was Woody Guthrie's writings and, 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 and photographs and things like that, uh, you know, he really seemed to respond to that, which is, which is, you know, which was really cool. You've just reminded me of that fantastic Saturday Night Live sketch from years and years ago. You've probably seen it where he visits Woody Guthrie. And, oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. And writes down everything that Woody says, which become his song titles. <laughs> Excuse me, excuse me, uh, Mr. Guthrie, but that young Mr. Dillon is here to see you. Now, would you like me to tell him to leave? Nah, send the kid in. <laughs> okay, okay. It makes can... me laugh, you know, it takes a lot to laugh. Right. It takes the train to cry. <laughs> right. Uh, okay, you can come in. Hey, hey, Woody Guthrie, I wrote your song. Hey, hey, hey please, quiet, please. This is a hospital. Gee, Woody, I didn't mean to upset your nurse none. Oh, that's just like a woman, kid. But don't think twice, it's all right. What are you doing, writing a book? Don't mind me, Woody, just keep on talking Oh, yeah, well, I'm just blowing in the wind these days Hell, I feel like I'm a knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door But I don't know, I, I just keep hoping I shall be released It's like I was saying to Mick Jagger the other day I 
can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> I wouldn't know him. He's a complete unknown. He's like a rolling stone. Yeah, I can relate to that. I'm a complete unknown, no direction home. Like a rolling stone? Yeah. How does it feel? It's all right. Reading about this archive answers a question that I've had for a number of years about Bob's book Chronicles, where it was hard to understand how he could remember so much, but obviously he has kept so many things. I mean, you met the, there's 100,000 items in the archive. He owns all the recordings to all, all the tapes of all his recording sessions, and you've got thousands of pages of his writing lyrics. And I know that one of the aspects of Dylan's art that you want to show is the process by which he composed songs and how each song developed, isn't it? That's an important part of what this is all about. Yeah, huge. You know, um, and that essentially was my introduction to the archive. Was 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 seeing the manuscripts before I and the, the handwritten drafts of some of the songs. You know, before you know, I listened to the, any of the studio recordings or uh, seen some of the film material. And there's volumes of it. You know, just and and it wasn't. You don't get the sense that he was keeping it um, again to to you know deposit it somewhere, have it at a museum. But you do get the sense that. Uh, you know, it was just all kind of grist for the mill. That he was um, uh, 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 keeping a lot of this material around because it was it was just part of his process. Um, and it's interesting to see that like some songs that start in one era would kind of migrate. You see that a lot in like the later '70s into the early '80s. Some some manuscripts that 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 begin in one era migrate to like a different a different record uh, uh um, so you know you don't get the sense that he was ever like writing because he had like a recording session coming I just get the sense that he was just constantly he's a writer so he's constantly he's constantly writing mm-hmm. and uh and, and i think these the, a lot of these drafts and a lot of these papers were just very much a part of of, of his process well, ta- ta- a song like Tangled Up in Blue started off with a completely different title, completely unrelated to what eventually occurred, he wrote, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the jewels of the arc is we have these two notebooks that were previously just unknown. I mean, they were known to the music company, but not to the public. And uh, they're essentially his Blood on the Tracks uh, notebooks. There's three notebooks total. One, one of them are, are, is actually in a, in a library here in New York City. But that notebook, uh, it's very interesting, but it's like, they're almost like fair copies of the song. They're very close to the, the, the final versions as Bob would sing. The, 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 the two notebooks that we have in Tulsa are, are much, much earlier, um, you know, probably three or four months earlier. And the songs are, 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 are totally different. And most of them don't have titles. I think the original title of Tangled Up in Blue is Dusty Sweatbox Blues. And, uh, you know, page after page after page. Of, of of lyrics and and that's the other thing that the archive really reveals is just how great of an editor uh, bob is he's ruthless you know in terms of editing his own work and uh you know picking out lines and making certain things making certain things work but those blood on the track notebooks are really unique and interesting i mean what, another thing that's interesting about the archive is that every era whether it's you know the mid 60s or the mid 70s and mid 80s the, the you know the one thing that remains constant is there's a ton of writing, but the way that Bob is writing is completely different in like in every in every era. Um, whether Bob's at the typewriter and like then decides to revise things by 
by hand, or in the case of Blood on the Tracks, he's writing in this very minuscule, concentrated writing uh, in these notebooks. And then the, a lot of the later stuff in the 80s and 90s is all written out by hand. Mm-hmm. Very little evidence in the archive that Bob has ever used a word processor or a computer. <laughs> uh, you know, even up until uh, Tempest, he's still writing everything out by hand. Um, one of the things that you found evident was that Dylan, as you mentioned there, was a really hard worker. And they say that genius is 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration. What's the ratio where Dylan is concerned, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's probably something like 50-50. I mean, whatever native talents he has, and, you know, he definitely teased that out uh, just by having so much discipline, you know, to, to, to you know, be able to sit down and, and, and just write this stuff. And, and the archive kind of proves that. I mean, I, I thought it was funny, you know, after he got the Nobel, you know, I, I, I mean, I think most you know, most people uh, uh, agree that, that he deserved it. But, you know, a lot of the criticism was that, oh, he's not a writer. How could, how could a songwriter? But then when you see the archive, then you see how much writing uh, is in the archive. It kind of, you know, it just kind of proves uh, uh, just how writerly and disciplined uh, you know, Dylan, Dylan is. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, it's just like, his his ambition when he first moved to New York, his his self belief, all those things just factored in, you know. And and again, yeah, his discipline and his ability to 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 work. I mean, that that's that's what comes through immediately. It's just how hard of a worker. And and I mean, it's obvious just in terms of how many shows he plays a year and all the touring and stuff. That uh, yeah, ser- he's a seriously disciplined. Uh, seriously disciplined artist for a rock and roller he's really it's pretty obvious he's not touring to make money that's for sure he's touring because he loves playing live i mean that has to be i mean that has to be it i mean that has to be it i mean why else why else do it i mean i i I, you know i don't know but i'm just assuming that there's a real you know joy there and especially with the band that he's been playing with for the past Mm. you know 20 years or so i mean they're they're they're, they're like elastic i mean they can go anywhere uh, and oftentimes do um people often complain about the way he reinterprets his songs on stage um and i can understand why and you you, you do wonder yourself until you hear him do a version of something from you know um highway 61 revisited where he'll do incredible versions of some of those songs which completely reinvent the songs yeah i mean the other thing that really kind of comes across in the archive is like the songs as they exist on record are a snapshot of that particular moment i don't you know i don't get a sense i mean just in looking at the materials and hearing some of the things that in the, in the collection that Bob feels like any of these things are definitive. you know that 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 you know the record that comes out is is a snapshot of a particular moment and he's still trying to find certain songs I mean he's still writing Tangled Up in Blue I mean Tangled Up in Blue is probably the one song since it was written that has undergone the most radical changes over the years and continually he's constantly going back to it and uh you know um you know even after the song was recorded he it, it, there's these edits in the archive you know we've been calling them copyright edits because after he would cut like a, a record he would uh, you know he would have to have the songs uh, you know yeah. uh, copyrighted and he's like 
he's making changes to the song even after he's recorded it. And he's saying, you know, copyright it this way, um, which is very interesting. You know, it just never, it, they're never finished. They're always in this state of becoming, you know. And, and that's what makes the archive so compelling and so interesting is, uh, uh, yeah. is how much of that uh, is, is present. sun was shining he was lying in bed wondering if she changed it all of her hair was still red her folks they said her lives together sure was gonna be rough they never did like mama's homemade dress papa's bank book wasn't big enough and he was standing on the side of the road rain falling on his shoes Heading out for the old East Coast, Lord knows he's paid some dues. Getting through, tangled up in blue. You're listening to a Rhythms podcast. I'm Brian Wise, and I'm talking to Michael Chaikin, curator of the Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I assume you must have been a Bob Dylan fan before you took on this job. <laughs> I guess that goes without saying, is it? Yeah, I mean... No, absolutely, absolutely. But there were there were particular eras that I knew very well, and now I could say I have a, a better sense of the whole, you know, and when things happened and just the, the the timeline. Which, you know, before things were, especially like the early years when he first got to New York City and where he was and what he was doing, that was always it was always very mystifying to me. But having spent all this time with the collection, I've gotten to know just uh, other aspects of his career in, in ways that I didn't before. And uh, uh, so that's been, yeah, that's been a lot of, that's been fun, you know, mm-hmm. um, discovering things and, 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 you know, records that I hadn't really spent a lot of time with. I, I, I you know, since working with the collection, they've, they've become some of my favorites, you know. Hey, one of the stories that really interests me, and you were talking about the extra hours of film from the Don't Look Back tour, and I believe this film also from his 1966 UK tour, of the story of how when he was touring in 65, in early May of that year, he saw John Mayall playing with Eric Clapton, and he wanted them to back him on Maggie's Farm in his concert that night, but that, that didn't happen. But a month later, he went electric at... Newport with Mike Bloomfield on guitar and the connection between seeing John Mayall with Eric Clapton and then getting Mike Bloomfield is just stunning uh, sort of revelation in, in a way I guess fans would be aware of that and later when the band was with Dylan and and then they released music from Big Pink Clapton wanted to be a member of the band it's all kind of connected isn't it it's very it's, yeah it's very very uh yeah, the synchronicity there is really crazy. But but you're right. When 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 Penny Baker was filming Dylan in London, 
in May of 1965. Eric Clapton had just joined John Mayall and the Blues Breakers. And um, you see John Mayall for a second, actually, in Delta. He's sitting in the back of the car with, with Dylan and, and Baez. I think he's also in the party scene. But you're absolutely right. There was a recording session on May 12th. So after that tour ended, um, there was a recording session where the Blues Breakers backed up uh, Dylan, and they they kind of ran through a couple songs. Nothing ever really came of it, but uh, you and you see you actually see some of this in the outtakes. They didn't the, the recording session wasn't filmed because Penny Baker had gone back to the states. But there is a very interesting moment in in in, in the outtakes uh, of Don't Look Back where they're watching. They're sitting in the the Savoy Hotel in London, and they're watching television, and. Uh, uh, the Blues Breakers come on TV and Bob tells everyone to to quiet down. He, he really wants to watch this. And he explains to everyone sitting there, including Tom Wilson's producer and his manager, Albert Grossman, uh, Bobby Newworth. He says, watch these guys because these guys could, could back me up and we could do Maggie's Farm just like we do it on the record, um, which is interesting because one, it's the first time that, that Dylan, like one, sees Clapton. Uh, but two, you see the wheels like in his head turning. It's like, this is definitely the next move for me. And so when he comes back to the States and he hooks up with Bloomfield, who he had met earlier, he met Mike Bloomfield back in, I think, 63 in Chicago when Bob was touring uh, or playing there. But as soon as he gets back to the States, he, you know, he recruits Bloomfield, who was essentially like, you know, America's answer to Eric Clapton. Um, so the synchronicity there is is is... Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. One of the things that's always amazed me about the bootleg series are some of the songs like Red River Shore, which is mm-hmm. an absolutely brilliant song that he never released officially on any studio albums. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's happened several times. <laughs> Blind yeah. Will you know, a number of songs um, that for whatever reasons, Bob just felt it wasn't it just wasn't right or it wasn't ready or they didn't, they didn't, they didn't quite, I think with blind William McTell, he just said that, yeah, we didn't get it. We didn't capture the song, you know, you know, 30 years later, listening back to it. I mean, it's, it's sublime. And yeah, I mean, these things have all found a way out one way or another, whether it's the official bootleg series or it's like via unofficial bootlegs. Um, All this stuff now has kind of entered into the, entered into the canon. What are your favorite Bob Dylan songs? If you had to narrow it down to a few, I don't know. I mean, that changes. It changes, <laughs> you know, changes almost daily. Um, you know, I like John Wesley Harding a lot. That 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 record I find really mysterious and and, and very intriguing. Um, I like Infidels a lot. I mean, that's a record that is really like shot of love. Infidels, like that that period, especially since working on the archive, like that 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 period has really kind of come alive for me. But do I have a fair? No, I, you know, I, the, uh, you know, there's eras and there's there's records, but no, I don't I don't have a, a single favorite. I, I guess, you know, today it might be something like, I don't know, License to Kill off Infidels. Mm, um, a, a period you've mentioned that didn't get great critical acclaim in uh, Dylan's career, Michael. So it's interesting that you kind of rediscovering that. Uh, which one, Infidels? Or that, well, that, that whole sort of Christian period, a shot of love and, and albums like that. Yeah, I mean, as I, when the, soon after the archive arriving in Tulsa, they started working on a bootleg series of the gospel period called Trouble No More. So mm. uh, 
was like volume 13 bootleg series. Like I, I got to hear a lot of that and also look at a lot of the film footage that was shot around that time. And it was just total revelation. I, you know, I had no idea, especially the, the 1981 world tour. It's just staggering. And it, and it just so happened that um, uh, the guitar player on that tour, Steve Ripley, uh, is a Tolson. So I got to know him a bit. Uh, he, he, sadly, he passed away uh, a couple of years ago. But uh, yeah, I got I got to know him. Uh, he was he was quite a character and had great stories. So yeah, again, I mean, that just goes back to what we were talking about. How like you know, there's some eras that you know I knew, but definitely not to the degree that uh, you know I know them now or familiar with them now. So there's been a lot of revelation. I mean, I, I'm I'm coming to this thing as a fan, not an expert, you know. So it's it's always, you know, it's always it's always nice to be able to kind of as the archive grows, I, you know, I can kind of grow with it and see different sides of Bob's career that uh, you know, I wasn't totally familiar with. doorpost saying this land is condemned all the way from New Orleans to Jerusalem I travel through East Texas where many martyrs fell And I know no one can sing the blues Like blind Willie McTell Well, I heard that hoodoo all singing as they were taking down the tents The stars above the barren trees Were his only audience Them charcoal gypsy maidens Can't strut their feathers well but nobody can sing the blues like blind Willie McTell. Michael, by this stage, you would have been able to work out why so many people obsess about Bob Dylan's work, and you're going to meet a lot of them when the Bob Dylan Centre opens, aren't you? But have you worked out why so many people obsess about his work? Not They're not just fans, they're... Yeah, they, they, they're obsessive, right? I mean, they, you know, other people who are serious about an artist, they call them, you know, generally they're called scholars, but with Dylan, they're called obsessive. I don't know. I mean, that goes a couple of different ways. I mean, I, I just think, you know, generationally, I mean, if you were growing up in the, you know, I wasn't growing up. I was born in 1975. So that's already like, you know, the midway point, I guess, in Bob's career. Um, but if you were growing up in the 60s and stuff, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, these songs, these songs were, were, 
means so much to so many people. I mean, the, you know, monumental events in their lives are wrapped up in, in, in some of these songs. It, it's a very personal, it's a very personal thing to people. And, and, you know, personal to me too. I mean, I have my own, you know, memories of hearing certain things uh, at certain points uh, in my life. And I don't think I'm unique in that. And so, yeah, I mean, Dylan's fans are very passionate. His music reaches people at, 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 a, at a really, you know, deep and profound level. I mean, I also think there's this thing that Bob does where, um, you know, people find him mysterious or enigmatic. Um, but I think that has more to do with the way he deals with his celebrity, which is strange. <laughs> Not the way he deals with, like, his work, but just the way he deals with fame. I mean... I think Dylan arguably is probably one of the, you know, maybe 10 most famous people in the world today, but not very many people know anything about him. Mm, exactly. In terms of just like the basic details of, of, of his day-to-day, of his day-to-day life. And I, I think that keeps people kind of curious and interested. But, you know, over the past 20 years or so, I, I think, especially like when you read interviews with him and stuff, he's never been clearer or more direct in terms of what his influences are and where he's drawing inspiration from. But he's still very mature when it comes to like celebrity and, and, and fame and things like that. And uh, so I think that also, you know, keeps people like, like obs- kind of obsessed or curious because just the way he deals with fame is, is, is not something that people can get their heads around very easily. So I don't know. I think it's a couple of things. I mean, I think ultimately it comes down to the songs and just how they move people and uh, how people attach uh, you know, their own you know, memories or feelings to these things. And, and, and that goes very deep. Yeah, you, well, you're talking to someone who can remember exactly when he heard Like a Rolling Stone for the very first time, which was when I suddenly, it was like a bolt of lightning. So I can understand what you're talking about there. Sure. Sure. I mean, you know, defining moments in, in mm. people's life. He's just, just been there. He turns 80, you know, next week. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, he's, he's just always been there, like the mountains or something like that. <laughs> he said that uh, when he's 90, if you want to find him, he'll be out on the road touring, which is, I guess, pretty much right, I guess. Probably true. That's probably true. Well, um, listen, thank you for spending so much time. Thanks. Thanks. All the best. Bye. Later, buddy. Michael Chaikin talking about the Bob Dylan Center and about Bob Dylan himself. The music we heard, Licensed to Kill from the Infidels album of 1983. Blind Willie McTowell performed by Chrissy Hind from her latest album, which has just been released, Standing in the Doorway. Chrissy Hind sings Bob Dylan. 
And uh, before that, we heard Tangled Up in Blue by Bob Dylan from The Blood on the Tapes bootleg, recorded at the A&R Recording Studio A on the 16th of September 1974. And we heard a bit of the Saturday Night Live sketch where Bob Dylan meets Woody Guthrie. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast today. Don't forget you can check out Rhythms Magazine, rhythms.com.au. And of course, if you subscribe to the magazine, you get our free download card with 20 or so tracks of great new music. I'll be back next week with another Rhythms podcast.